0: Welcome to the Gutenberg Podcast, where we discuss the books and ideas which have influenced Western civilization through the curriculum of Gutenberg College. My guest today is Naomi Reinhold once again. Naomi, tell us a story.
1: Several hundred years ago, in Paris, there were two neighbors, a Frenchman named Jeannot and a Jew named Abraham. Now, Jeannot was extremely honest and upright ran a flourishing textile business, and he was a good Christian. Abraham, also honest and full of integrity, was fabulously wealthy. Not sure what he did, the story doesn't say. The two of them often would have conversations, and Janot became more and more agitated about the fact that Abraham, being a Jew and not belonging to the true Christian faith, was not looking forward to a good end. Abraham found Janot's agitation somewhat amusing. Janot set out to convince Abraham that he needed to convert to Christianity, specifically Catholicism, and he had many, shall we say, homespun arguments. He was not, for all his success in business, the brightest of men. And Abraham found his arguments highly entertaining and would listen to them. And because of Jeanneau's uprightness and honesty, he respected him despite his perhaps lack of intellect. Now, one of the arguments that Jeanneau made was that Christianity was clearly growing by leaps and bounds. It was prospering. It was getting bigger and better all the time. And this was demonstrating that it was sound and holy. While Abraham's faith was on the wane, manifestly declining and coming to nothing surely before too long. Now, how seriously Abraham took these arguments is, well, I'm not entirely sure he took them at all seriously. However, as entertained as he was by Jeannot's arguments, he would listen, and he finally tells him, you know, Jeannot, I'll tell you what, you would like me to become a Christian, and I am prepared to convert, but I need some demonstrable proof that this is the right faith. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to take a trip to Rome, and I'm going to see how the Pope and the Cardinals and all the leaders of the church live. And if that's all good and wonderful, then I think I'll become a Christian. And Janot says, oh, no, 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 no. You don't need to do that, because Genot, well, perhaps not the smartest man, is not a fool. He knows what goes on in Rome. He realizes that there's a lot of corruption and a lot of things that would not make a Jew who is honest and full of integrity want to convert and become a co-religionist with those people. But Abraham was not dissuaded. And so as you know, well, what could he do? Abraham went to Rome and sure enough, he found it was full of corruption, debauchery, you name it. If it was bad, it was there. He was actually somewhat agog at how bad it was. He came home, and uh, Jeanneau was pretty sure that he was not going to convert. But, you know, they're neighbors. Jeanneau likes him. He goes over, and he's like, so, how was your trip? Well, he said, I don't know that I've ever seen such a huge collection of rapacious money grubbers. And he spared Janot a lot of the details, but he gave him the gist that he was not impressed. But he said, and he said, and I'm going to quote straight from the text. As far as I can judge, it seems to me that your pontiff and all the others too are doing their level best to reduce the Christian religion to naught and drive it from the face of the earth, whereas they are the very people who should be its foundation and support. But since it is evident to me that all their attempts are unavailing and that your religion continues to grow in popularity and become more splendid and illustrious, I can only conclude that being more holy and genuine religion than any of the others it deservedly has the holy ghost as its foundation and support and he carries on basically he goes to rome he sees how horrible it is he comes home and says man if christianity is growing despite those people it must be the true faith and he converts the end happily ever after
0: so naomi that's an interesting story it's almost a joke
1: it is where does that come from That comes from a 14th century Italian work by Giovanni Boccaccio called The Decameron. It's one of the first great vernacular works of either the late Middle Ages or the early Renaissance, depending who you talk to. I tend to think of it as a bridge between the two. This is a work written in the language spoken by the people of the region as opposed to Latin, which was the language most things were written in at that time or up until that time. The particular vernacular that Boccaccio was writing in was the Florentine or Tuscan dialect of Italian.
0: So uh, today we're going to be talking about Boccaccio's Decameron. We thought we should start with a story so that folks get a little bit of the flavor of the kinds of stories, or at least one of the kinds of stories, that's in this work. Naomi, why don't you set us up with a little bit of that context? As you were saying, perhaps it's a bridge between the medieval and the Renaissance. Tell us a little about those eras. We've spent some time discussing some of the things involved with the Middle Ages, but paint the picture for us of what's going on in the world as Boccaccio is writing his work.
1: Boccaccio starts writing in the middle of a great plague, a pandemic, if you will. The bubonic plague, the Black Death, is sweeping through Europe. It's already wiped out provinces of China. It's come along the Silk Road carried by rats. It's getting on ships and infecting whole cities. It's kind of a mess. And this plague is one of the things that transitions from the middle ages to the renaissance precisely because it so depleted the population that the social and economic structure of the middle ages feudalism was no longer tenable so all the people who were working on the land and who were tied to the land there weren't enough to actually do the job anymore that's one thing and also There were a lot of opportunities in cities that had been vacated by the death of their previous owners. And so the plague leads to a lot of mobility of the people who can still, you know,
0: walk. As we've discussed before on the podcast, well, maybe we haven't discussed, but as I've discussed with other folks on this podcast before, after the fall of Rome, there's this rush to find somebody who can protect you. And the trade-off with somebody protecting you is that you're working their land and growing crops for them and then everybody in the area who are dependent on those same lands. Mm. And so part of what happens is there's sudden demand for people to work everywhere, Yeah, which means that you no longer just have to serve whoever your local lord was. You could go somewhere else and find possibly better opportunities than the generation before you had had.
1: Yeah, and add to the mix that the nobility was not spared the plague. So it may be that you made it through okay, but the people who are in charge of you are gone, and now you have to figure out what to do with yourself.
0: Yeah. There's also, by and large, the people who are staying with the people who who are dying, Mm -hmm. who are sick and dying are some of the best people in your society. Yeah. Right? They're the people who are willing to take care of the sick and dying and are not necessarily only worried about their own health and safety. The most conscientious and civil-minded. Right. Particularly, a lot of the people who took on the burden of that in the Middle Ages would have been the clergy. Mm -hmm. And one of the things the plague does is... Most of the clergy who are left after the bubonic plague are the people who would run away and not stay. And this is going to later be one of the contributing factors to the crisis that leads to the Protestant Reformation. Mm -hmm. Because there is all of this corruption, although according to that story, corruption is old hat at this point, the Protestant reformers and then the Catholic Church as well mm-hmm. are all going to go something's got to change we've got to shake up the order so the the Reformation is still a century and a half yeah. away but things are beginning to happen now that are going to exacerbate the conditions that are going to make that a thinkable proposition in the future
1: mm-hmm.
0: So let's go back to the time we're talking about and let's talk a little bit about the Renaissance and what was going on there and what Boccaccio is contributing and doing at the beginning of that period.
1: Yeah, so the Renaissance, I'm sure this has been covered before, but the word itself just means rebirth. And this refers to the readoption, rediscovery in some cases by the West of ancient Greek texts. And they get very excited about finding new Aristotle they haven't read in the original language, finding other old texts. They also, because of the situation in Byzantium, although I guess it's Constantinople by this point, they're about to get overrun by a Muslim force. And a lot of people can see the writing on the wall and they don't really want to be ruled by the Muslims one way or the other. And so they tend to flee to Rome, one big city to a different big city. Well, once you get to Italy, maybe you don't think Rome is the best place to go. So you go to Genoa or Florence or Venice or somewhere like that, that are beginning to become centers of commerce and banking and soon to be centers of culture. And that's what this process is doing. A lot of these people are educated. They had the means to move. And they brought their texts and some of their wealth with them. A lot of them who had these texts were familiar enough with the language that they could teach the Italians the ancient Greek language. And so there was renewed interest in ancient Greece, ancient Rome, and in the roots of the Italian or Roman, if you will, civilization. And it's the people of the Renaissance who give the Middle Ages that name and they mean it pejoratively they say you know there's us and we're going to be pretty awesome and then there's the glory days back in the roman empire and the ancient greeks and then there's this like middle time where nothing interesting happens and everything goes to
0: it's it's particularly petrarch yes who is rather famous for denigrating the bad times before (laughs) yes now People will argue about when the Renaissance begins, mm-hmm. partially because, in a lot of ways, the idea of giving a time period a categorization the way that you do when you call something the Renaissance mm-hmm. is kind of arbitrary. Yeah. Somebody like C.S. Lewis actually argued that you should think of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance more holistically, that there's more continuity there than. For instance, somebody like Petrarch would think, uh-huh. but also because there is a flourishing of Italian art at the beginning, right? What you would think as the earliest dates, right? Petrarch is a famous, famous poet, mm-hmm. and his poetry marks something significant. Yeah. And you also have. Renaissance painting is, you know, there's a whole section in your museum that has that thing.
1: And that comes in just after Boccaccio. So Boccaccio was good friends with Petrarch. Sure. And was a great admirer of his, I guess you could say predecessor in certain ways, Dante. Yeah. Who, the three of them were the first three big writers in the vernacular in Italy. And they set the tone for a lot of the things we see in the Renaissance.
0: Right. But the reason why you would set the dates later is there isn't a full flourishing of all avenues of learning. There's just a very limited scope to the painting Mm -hmm. and these guys at the beginning. And so there's an argument to be made that we should date it later because that's when... All of the learning starts Mm -hmm. to happen. yeah, And so that's kind of why the Renaissance is sometimes variable in when it starts or not. Because in some ways, you get a couple of things started. Mm -hmm. And are you going to date it from the earliest things that are starting? Or are you going to date it from the big bulk? Yeah. You know.
1: You could almost talk about it in terms of conception and birth, right? You have some really early stuff, a lot of development, but it doesn't become obvious what you've got until this actual birth of the movement which makes sense
0: and since a right. rebirth right it is it is significant how much petrarch talks up mm-hmm. how much the birth is happening during his time yeah and a lot of there are a lot of scholars who kind of go petrarch is overemphasizing how important he is mm-hmm. as important as he is there's going to be so many more developments right. later that he's just hyperbolic Yeah, when he's announcing how awesome he is. Yeah.
1: yeah, he kind of is thinking of himself as the pinnacle of a movement when he's
0: almost still a progenitor. Right, right, right. All right. So let's talk more about Boccaccio. You mentioned that he's a fan of... Dante's he is he
1: loved the divine comedy in fact he's the one who coined the term divine comedy Dante just called it the comedy il Commedia, and Boccaccio looked at it and he's like this is really amazing also it's about God this is the divine comedy uh. and somebody picked up on that later after Boccaccio had written the Decameron and their comment was well Dante had the Divine Comedy and Boccaccio had the Human Comedy. They're like equal co-reigning comedies in Italian literature, but Mm. one is about the divine and the other one is about the human.
0: That's interesting. You know, Petrarch, you might have had a high school class where they would talk about Petrarchan sonnets. Oh, yes. Right? He's left an indelible mark on poetry. And Dante is depending on how you want to categorize things, one of the final epicists, mm-hmm. right? He writes an epic poem in the style of Virgil mm-hmm. and Homer. Mm-hmm.
1: And he even puts them in it.
0: Right. And he even puts them in it. He even says they let him join their club. Uh-huh. But it seems like Boccaccio is doing something a little bit different. Yeah. How is his contribution distinct from these other two folks that we've been Mm -hmm. talking about
1: for boccaccio it's much more of a tone if dante wrote a comedy in the sense of all's well that ends well kind of comedy where it means it had a happy ending and everyone learned their lesson and all that good stuff boccaccio's comedy i'll just call it that he doesn't call it that i don't think is much more in line with our idea of a comedy. It's yeah. full of cleverness and tricks and right. people getting one up on each other right. and poking at authority and poking at people who just deserve to be poked at. Yeah. Not necessarily specific people, although that does show up, but types.
0: Right. Yes. In the story that you explain there, mm-hmm. right, you have poking fun at the uh, religious authorities mm-hmm. Not even necessarily of the day. there is a long period of time where you can look at the Catholic Church and talk about its corruption. Mm-hmm. So he might not even have this specific administration in mind, right. It's like talking about politicians in general, yeah, right. You might not have a specific one in mind. you just, oh yeah, like politicians or lawyers, right? Like mm-hmm. they have there's this thing that we're making fun of.
1: Well, and you add to that another complication. Which is another difference between Boccaccio's form, what he's doing here, and the other people we've talked about, which is his use of a framing device. Uh So the story I told was told by a character in the story that the narrator is telling. And the narrator might be Boccaccio and it might not be Boccaccio. So we have several levels of distance or Uh what's the word? Separation between the author boccaccio and this story uh-huh. did he write this story yeah he wrote the story did he come up with a hundred original stories that's how many stories are in the decameron he did not yeah. many of these stories are his adaptation of common stories yeah. that were just around some are his right most are probably him putting his own spin on things right so in some ways, this gives him more space to be irreverent, sure. more space to be critical. Yeah. But even that probably would not have been enough to keep him out of trouble if it weren't for the fact that we are hitting the end of the Middle Ages and that whole system of authority is on its way, if not out, then certainly to perhaps a more humble place.
0: Yeah. Let's back up a little bit and let's talk about this framing device in a little more detail. So the bubonic plague. That's part of the framing device. It is. Can you fill that out for us? Yeah.
1: So the characters in his story are also in Florence during the plague. And he is writing the story, his framing device around this story of the people who are going to tell the stories. His framing device around that is that He was unlucky in love, and he wants to tell some stories, especially to some young women who might also have been unlucky in love, and because it's not as socially acceptable for them to be demonstrative about their feelings, they've had to squelch that, and this will just give them an out. This is his little story at the beginning. So he's going to tell them this great story he knows, and it will be Not edifying in the sense of teachy-teachy, but it'll be good for them and they should enjoy it as well. What is the story? Ah, well, you guys all know how bad the plague is. And then he spends about 10 pages describing how bad the plague is. And it's pretty bad. And this part makes it sound like the people he's going to tell the story about, there's seven young women and three young men, are actual people that he ran across. Like he says he heard about this from somebody. So it makes it sound like they're living in the same city at the same time together when, as far as we know, all these people are characters that he made
0: up. They're fictitious. So this is a very complicated framing device. So I want to just be crystal clear. The plague is happening. Boccaccio starts writing the book and he's claiming. So I was talking to some ladies and I started telling them this story. The story Is about 10 young people, seven women, three guys, who want to escape from the plague. And I believe they leave the city, right? They go to somebody's estate.
1: So seven, the women are in church and they're commiserating. It was on a Tuesday. He remembers it specifically. (laughs) It was on a Tuesday, and they were talking about how all their family were dead, and they were, like, alone in their houses, and they were trying to figure out what they were supposed to do. Uh And one of them got the bright idea, and I believe her name is Pampanea. She says, all right, hear me out, ladies. We should all go out to an estate I know of, out in the country, far away from all this mess, because, frankly, everybody we know is dead, and there is no point in staying here. If there was a point in staying to help people or anything but like they're all dead and things are getting really scary around here really fast we should go out into the countryside it'll be cleaner we'll get away from this mess they like this idea and they start talking about it and one of them's like we really need to get some guys to go with us and you get some really kind of over the top obnoxious because we're just foolish women talk you're like oh that's interesting i wonder what what he's going to do with that well throughout the book you discover that He's pretty even-handed in the way he both praises and lampoons men and women. The only people, I mean, even people in the church, men and women, get both treatments. So it's fairly clear that he doesn't think that's the case. And it's interesting that he puts it in the mouth of one of these young women. But the upshot is they're like, we need some men to go with us, partly to carry heavy things. (laughs) i mean that might be the real reason i mean you know any anyway partly for protection because things are dangerous out there and partly for like to have chaperones or something Uh and you know in case we get really silly and can't decide what to do we can we can depend on them (laughs) which is really ironic because the silliest of all the characters is one young man named dnao but anyway so oh Surprise, three young men walk into the church just as they're saying this. Perfect. And these three young men are either related to or in love with any number, yes, you know, like the, there's always this, yes, everybody's yes. connected. So they go, oh, hello, would you like to come with us? And the young men say, yeah, sounds great. So they get their men servants and their women servants, because of course you can't go anywhere without men and women right, servants. Right, right, right. And they head out. And it's a little interesting because in his description of the plague which, as I said before, takes up something like 10 pages, he actually, that is to say Boccaccio, actually has some rather unkind things to say about people who leave the city. I'm going to read you a little paragraph after a paragraph where he describes a lot of things people tried, wandering around with herbs under their noses, wearing certain clothing, just a lot of different things. He says, Some people, pursuing what was possibly a safer alternative, callously maintained that there was no better or more efficacious remedy against the plague than to run away from it. Swayed by this argument and sparing no thought about anyone but themselves, large numbers of men and women abandoned their cities, their homes, their relatives, their estates, their belongings, and headed for the countryside, either in Florentine territory or, better still, abroad. It was as though they imagined the wrath of God would not unleash this plague against men for their iniquities, irrespective of where they happened to be, but would only be aroused against those who found themselves within city walls. Or possibly they assumed that the whole population would be exterminated and that the city's last hour had come. So this is just a couple pages before he introduces these young men and women who are patching this plan, which he characterizes quite kindly. It's just, it is interesting. We have these contradictory moves just within the first few pages.
0: So these young men and women go out to the country. Yep. They take a day they, to rest. And then the bulk of the book... Is 100 stories. Is each person taking turns mm-hmm. telling stories right. until each of them tell 10 stories.
1: Yes. They decide that it's going to be kind of boring if they just sit around all day. <laughs> so... Pampanea says, I have a proposal. She's always the one who has a proposal, at least for the group. She says, I have a proposal. Let's have a king or queen for each day, and whoever's a king or queen for the one day will pick the one for the next day, and that person has to organize the food and the activities and pick a topic for stories because I think the best thing to do during this hot part of the day, so you have your activities in the morning when it's nice, you have good food in the evening, but during the hot part of the day, you don't want to move around a whole lot. You're kind of just, eh, siesta time. Let's all hang out under the tree in the shade, you know, eat some grapes or something, and tell stories. And we'll each take a turn. And it makes sense. There's 10 of us. Let's do this for 10 days. We'll have 10 by 10. There are a lot of people, maybe not a lot of people, among Decameron scholars, there are a fair number of people who make a lot of hay about numerology seven women three men ten there's yeah i'm not super interested in that but it is a thing so yeah they take turns pampanea goes first because she's a leader and they're all like well you're clearly queen for the first day because you've been leading us this whole time (laughs) only makes sense and pampanea says oh well i decree that we'll go eat this and blah 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 and everyone will get to tell whatever kind of story they want So she declines picking a topic (laughs) and just lets everybody choose to tell the story they want. And so you have a bit of a grab bag on day one. You have a lot of stories where something about the Catholic Church or particular religionists of the Catholic Church are lampooned. Mm -hmm. But you also have a lot of stories, in fact, almost all the stories, where one person gets the better of another person via wit. And sometimes this is to their good, one person... Shocks someone else out of a sudden fit of parsimony. Yes, (laughs) I I didn't know that was a thing, but apparently it is. Another one shames someone else into being brave in the case of this king or generous in the case of this wealthy person. We also have a little bit of salacious stuff, very common in in the Decameron. And Decameron, this is an appropriate time to say this, it actually comes from the Greek Greek, decahemeron, ten days. And apparently this was actually a fairly common naming strategy. There's a Hexameron and a couple other things like that already extant. And so he's just picking up. Yeah. Interestingly, though, I think those were all religious works. And his is not so much. Just people talking about whatever. Yeah.
0: The book that is in the Gutenberg curriculum that folks may be familiar with, that is... The closest analogy to the thing Boccaccio is doing in this work, to my mind, is the Canterbury Tales.
1: Absolutely. And a lot of people think that, I mean, it seems fairly uncontroversial that Chaucer picks up this idea of the framing device and telling stories. From Boccaccio. Right.
0: Because Chaucer's story, you have all these pilgrims going to Canterbury, mm-hmm. and they're like, it's a long road to Canterbury, and it's going to be boring, so in the hot part of the day, let's tell each other stories, right? Uh-huh, yeah. And so you have the same. Now, the Canterbury Tales famously are not completed.
1: And his stories tend to be a lot longer than Boccaccio. Right, and, and he
0: announces at the beginning of the book, here's how the stories are going to go down. And he was unable to complete the sequence yeah. that he promises at the beginning of the work. Whereas Boccaccio, does Boccaccio complete his full complement of He stories? makes
1: no promises, but he completes 100
0: stories. Awesome.
1: But some are only, you know, a page long.
0: Sure, sure. Well, and in the case, you know, sometimes a story is a joke. Oh, yeah. Right? It's a very short Pithy, whatever. And 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 sometimes you get these very Mm. long, complex, winding things.
1: That's right. And there's a lot of jokes in Boccaccio.
0: Before we go on to talk about a couple more of these stories, just so people get a sense of the kind of thing that Boccaccio is doing, I want to touch on two things. First, it's very common until fairly recently to have a character report things as if they happened Mm -hmm. right the beginning of mary shelley's frankenstein yeah is written as if the book is being written by a character Mm -hmm. who finds a guy who tells him the actual story of the book right victor hugo Mm -hmm. has this same device of I found this lost book somewhere and here's what it said. Mm -hmm. And so this idea of separating the fictional world from reality, but giving that kind of separation that you were talking about Mm -hmm. is extremely common. It's only very recently that, particularly in the history of the novel, that you just start a story and tell it as if it happened without giving your reader a cue of like, okay, this is, I know I'm telling you this really happened, but you know that this didn't really happen because I'm telling you that it really did. The other thing I want to talk about is I just wanted to share one of the things that I learned, and it was really reading the Decameron at Gutenberg where I learned this. And this really has nothing to do with the content of the Decameron, but it might be helpful for folks who might come to the Decameron and try to read it which is, I don't know exactly where I absorbed this from, but I had this notion that you could squeeze meaning out of a text. And there were hidden connections. You talking about numerology Mm -hmm. is a big thing there. And if you don't know what to pay attention to, something like the Decameron will drive you insane Mm -hmm. because there's 10 people and I remember I was trying to figure out is there something that the stories that each of the people tell is there a theme running through each person Uh and the kinds of stories they tell and is that supposed to tell me something symbolic and meaningful Mm -hmm. and when you read fiction you really have to let the author cue you into what's going on And if you don't really know how to pay attention to that, it can drive you insane. Oh, yeah. And I remember when I read the Decameron for Gutenberg, I just made myself crazy Hmm. trying to make these connections with my conspiracy board. And it was the reading that made me realize I have to have a different kind of strategy, now, it may be the case that there is something to the numerology. You know, there may be like really complicated patterns going on in this book, but in order to really get a feel for that, you would have to be really familiar with the kind of books that were happening around Boccaccio, right? You need some kind of sense of how, how patterns and things like that were used within the time to give legitimacy to the idea of, oh, yeah, I should totally be focused on any kind of numerological ideas.
1: Yeah, and it's unlikely that anything very esoteric or complicated would have been what he was up to because he was writing partly for his own amusement, but mostly for the somewhat edifying but mostly entertainment of just common people. Right. So he wouldn't be going in for anything terribly obscure or convoluted. Right.
0: Unless it was just for his own amusement. Right. And, you know, someone like an O. Henry, Mm -hmm. any great short storyteller, you kind of take the stories one at a time. Right. You can trace bigger themes and talk about an author's project or something Mm -hmm. or the things that they were concerned about, but you're not necessarily trying to find how the short stories are all interconnected.
1: Right. They're writing a bunch of independent works, not a symphony that has multiple movements and themes that repeat.
0: And the thing I mentioned before about this convention of giving some kind of framing device, Mm. it is possible that if Boccaccio were happening in our day, granted, he wouldn't be back in history to do what he's doing but you could imagine him just being a short story writer yeah you could have a collection of short stories that he released Mm -hmm. that would be this collection and there doesn't necessarily have to be any more significance to the framing device except that it's the way that he's going to get to telling these different stories
1: right and if he were writing today it would be especially appropriate since we've had our own little pandemic recently. Right. And a lot of the things that people were concerned about are things that get brought up perennially when plagues come through, when epidemics come through.
0: There are other books that are written related to plagues. Right. That and we read in the Gutenberg curriculum. uh uh-huh. Camus wrote a book that's just called "The Plague." Mm-hmm. Camus is more interested in the tragedy of the plague. But you know, one way that people respond to absurdity and really difficult situations is with humor. Mm-hmm. And so Boccaccio is like a very understandable the, right. The, yeah. the reaction to that is very understandable. Yeah. All right, so we understand the framing device of Boccaccio. We understand some of his context and what he's writing into. Let's talk about a couple of the other stories that he writes so that we can get folks a little taste of what's in this book. Sounds good.
1: So the very first story on the first day is the story of a man who became a saint. Saint Chapoletto. But he didn't start out life as Saint Chapoletto, He started out as Ser... Ceparello, or Ceparello, rather. It's Italian, and I'm not very good with Italian. So, yes. Sir Ceparello. So, Sir Ceparello is the quintessential bad person.
0: <laughs>
1: he is so bad. He's one of these people, you know, would take candy from a baby multiple times, the same baby, <laughs> just to watch it cry. Uh-huh. Would, uh-huh. you know, cuss or yell at people, not because he was angry, but just for the sake of doing it. Right who, if given an opportunity to make more money honestly or less money dishonestly, would do the dishonest thing <laughs> on principle. Uh-huh. So just very, very bad man. And he lived his whole life this way. He was perhaps the most wicked man on record, according to the, the narrator, of course. And he's just going on his way being as bad as possible and racking up a horrible reputation. Part of his badness is he just has no moral boundaries. So he can be paid to do just about anything. So somebody who knows this about him wants to send him to this other city to collect a debt. And does. And gives him carte blanche to do what he wants. Well, he gets over there and he becomes horribly ill. He's staying in the house of these brothers who know his real reputation. Nobody else knows his real reputation because he's not from there. But they're thinking, oh man, he's going to die. And if he dies in our house, either we're going to have to get a priest to confess him and it'll come out what a horrible person he is. Or he'll die unshriven in our house and we'll be up a creek with these people because (laughs) you just can't be doing that to your guests. Right. So they're having this little confab outside his room because I think he's on death's door. I mean, he kind of is, but he's listening to them. He has good hearing. And Boccaccio makes this funny comment about how the sick are sometimes more acute of hearing, which, <laughs> like, I haven't noticed that particularly, but apparently that's a thing. It's oh, one of
0: those throwaway things that sounds credible, uh huh. Mostly because it's hilarious, yeah, and not because if you stop and think about it, it actually <laughs> yeah you know
1: makes it. any sense. Yeah. So, Sir Ceparello, he hears them talking, and he h- calls out to them. Oh no no no! You won't you won't be in any trouble. I know I'm dying, send for a priest, I'll take care of everything. <laughs> and they don't really have a lot of faith in his ability to take care of everything, but they it's one of these things that no matter what they pick, it's a catch-22 situation for them. There's no good way out, this offers them a sliver of hope. So, they call for the priest. Now, luck of the draw, or divine providence, or, you know, the narrator is bringing us the fact that the priest that they summon is a little elderly... And perhaps the most pious priest in the entire region. One of these people who is pure as the driven snow, as they say, and also a little bit naive. Uh Like, he thinks the best of everyone. Right. He really believes that goodness is so beautiful and wonderful that how could anyone not love it? Right. Right? And these poor, sad people who, you know, they fall short and they need to confess. We all understand this. Yes. So he comes to Sarah... Ceparello's bedside and says oh i understand you're ready to give your final confession and share chaperello's oh yes oh i'm such a terrible sinner i've done such horrible things and the priest of course is getting concerned and is gearing up to hear something truly heinous and sir chaperello's like yes and he he does about 20 of these it's like yes i you see i i do i do go to confession i go very often, every day almost, but I haven't gone in so long because I've been ill. It's been four days since my last confession. <laughs> and it just sets the tone. There's this one part where he's he's built up on this and the priest keeps trying to reassure him, oh, that's, that's fine. Like, uh-huh. really, you, this is not actually a, a failing. You're holding yourself to too high a standard. I'm sure God understands. And sir chaparella just gets more and more agitated and finally of course acting the whole time but finally comes the point and he just weeps and he can't talk and the priest is trying to comfort him and what is it what is it oh there's something i just can't say it's too terrible and the priest is like are we finally going to get something here and sir is like when i was a child oh i cursed my mother because i was ungrateful and the priest is just doesn't know what to do with this guy he's like wow this man is so holy that at you know in his 50s he's still not over the fact that he said something mean about his mom when he was five and that's the worst thing he can think of and he says you know he's confessed this at every confession since then because it just preys upon his mind and of course this entire time the audience we all know everyone in the house except the priest knows that sir chaparello is lying through his teeth. Just huge confabulations but the priest is immensely impressed by the holiness of this good man gives him absolution ser chaparello dies and the priest goes out and gives an impassioned and inspired sermon on the life of ser chaparello <laughs> who at this time like his name gets morphed into chapoletto which is chapel right so ser chapoletto He's just talking about how wonderful and holy he is, that his worst sins were cursing his mother when he was five and being ungrateful. And even that, I mean, really, who hasn't been? And maybe he's, you know, making that up in his head kind of thing. And extols his virtues. And he is such a good, impassioned, and inspirational speaker that his congregation is inspired by Sir Chapoletto now. Sir Chapoletto and his life and... Th- some miracles happen that get attributed to Sir Chapoletto and he becomes Saint Chapoletto and so Saint Chapoletto I mean that's where the story ends like right. <laughs> and and there's this little comment that the narrator that one of these characters makes about how you know the guy was really horrible but it just goes to show that we can be really messed up in who we saint and how we see things. God doesn't actually need the saints to listen. He hears us just fine. And when we misdirect our treaties to a saint who actually is not in the presence of God, God hears it anyway. It's (laughs) interesting because in some ways it's a little bit of a different kind of dig at Catholic theology.
0: No, it absolutely is. Because in that first story, the assumption is... Oh, he's going to go and he's going to see how corrupt everybody is. Mm -hmm. But then you have this extremely naive priest who is so undiscerning (laughs) that he saints somebody who doesn't deserve it. Mm -hmm. And so if you're too holy, that's bad. Uh But if you're just kind of normal corrupt, but you work for... (laughs) Mm -hmm. The institution of the church, that's bad too. Mm -hmm. So both of those work on that level of being jokes about different aspects of Mm -hmm. the clergy. Now, obviously, the two stories that we've talked about are pointed Mm -hmm. and are perhaps talking about types that are Mm -hmm. extreme versions of churchmen yeah right does Boccaccio have any stories where things are more in the middle do you have clergy who are admirable but not horribly but naive. not yeah you
1: do have some but I think all of them end up in stories where the church is not the butt of the joke right they're the straight man right, right. in the story where it's actually about love or lust or just human relationships or about political power. You'll sometimes have them play the straight man there too. Okay.
0: So Boccaccio isn't necessarily only concerned with lampooning the church. Oh no. It's clear that at points the church needs to be lampooned. Yes. But other things need to be lampooned as well.
1: Oh yeah. He really does take a great deal of pleasure in showing how foolish people can be Mm -hmm. in Any situation by having someone who's a little bit clever bring to light their foolishness, either by taking advantage of them or by saying something clever to make them have to change their ways, something like that. Yeah.
0: So we've now heard two stories and we don't have much time for many more stories. But do you have another story that's a little bit of a contrast with these other two?
1: Yeah, so here's one that I'll just synopsize very quickly. There's a marchioness who is famous for just being amazing.
0: A marchioness.
1: I it's some title nobility. Okay. So I don't it, really know what the like equivalent a, is. Like, a, like mar- a marquee, like a but, but it's the female and Italian version. <laughs> I think that's about okay, right. Yeah. Okay. So she's famous for being awesome basically okay very beautiful very wise very clever all the good things and she has a husband who is away on business fairly often well part of her being awesome is that she's also faithful so she is able to rebuff of all people the king of france who has become ridiculously enamored of her not actually having met her he like detours his army to go visit her (laughs) and she hears he's coming and she has to be a good hostess so what she does is she serves this really ornate dinner but every single dish has chicken in it specifically (laughs) hens and he's flirting with her and she's ignoring him and he finally has to ask about the chickens and she makes this comment about oh well in this part of the world you can dress chickens up any way you want but there's still just a chicken underneath and this was meant to be, you've got this picture of me in your head where I'm all that in a bag of chips, but women are women and you should just get your act together. And he's horribly ashamed. Pax doesn't even stay the night, uh-huh. thanks her for dinner and leaves. Uh-huh. And she manages just with a little fancy cooking right. and a little snarky remark right. that on the face of it isn't even snarky. Yeah. To send him off with with his... He saved face, right? Right. right. She didn't
0: yes, actively is, call him on it. This is actually an interesting thing in medieval stories in particular that come up. With, is people uh, obliging etiquette mm-hmm. while not letting somebody who's of a higher station have what they want. That's right, yeah. You know, how do you tell a king or queen... No. ...or even a lord or a lady, mm-hmm. but who you're at the mercy of, no, mm-hmm. without explicitly saying no, because that would be untoward. Yeah. And so, yes, having, having somebody clever... And it's interesting, in this story, there's clearly someone is in the wrong. Right. But the king isn't a villain. No. When he realizes what she's saying mm-hmm. he goes excuse me <laughs> <laughs> yeah. right
1: i've been a bit of an idiot i should right. go now
0: <laughs> and so the story doesn't have to have that kind of mm-hmm. just this this institution or this type of person is wrong
1: yeah there's another story about a hoarder but a man who's so tight-fisted he's hugely wealthy but he never spends money on anything can't stand to do it and he has a visitor and he's showing off for the visitor he has some respect for the visitor and then it's more there's more to it than this. But basically, there's a blank wall and the visitor, they're talking about putting a fresco there. And the visitor is like, oh, well, I, I know something um, that you could put there that has never been seen in this house. And the guy's, you know, peaked his curiosity. He's piqued. He says, what is that? And the guy's, well, you just paint generosity on the wall. And the guy is, is touched to the quick. And the way the story ends is he reforms and is generous. And you have another one where a woman makes a comment to this king who wasn't taking his responsibility seriously out of cowardice. She makes some comment to him and he becomes brave and mm-hmm. does what he's supposed to do in this situation. And these are very short stories. Right. Like you say, they're almost little jokes or little anecdotes. Right. Very, very pithy. Right.
0: One of the reasons short stories work is because you have to have a turn. Yeah. You have to have a little thing that changes the dynamic Mm -hmm. that puts a button on the story. Yeah. And so having these stories about somebody pointing out to somebody else that they've Mm -hmm. made, right, like, allows for the story.
1: Yeah. Some of the stories fall a little flat, frankly. Sure. And... I tend to think that this is intentional because this is just a bunch of young people out in the countryside uh-huh. telling stories. And there's this one girl who consistently tells kind of, you get to the end of the story and you're like, what? <laughs> or you go, wow, that was so obvious. It almost hurt me. Right. Like there was one where there's a guy who's super tight fist, or no, he's super generous and is very hospitable. And the, the character number two shows up. And he doesn't want to be hospitable to him because he just doesn't like his face or something. Uh-huh. And so he sits around there and doesn't eat anything for three days and is waiting for something to happen. And so the guy, the the host comes out and the guest tells him a story that is basically him just telling what happened, except he changes the names and the setting. Uh-huh. And the guy is like, "Oh no, I need to be generous to you." And it's 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 kind of embarrassing. Yeah. You're like this is just yeah. kind of a ham fisted. Yeah. But the thing is, the same girl tells most of the kind of falling flat ham-fisted stories yeah, so you get this feeling and i mentioned dnao earlier he calls shotgun but he's like i want to tell the last story every day because i want to end on light heartedness and i'm uh-huh. funny and everyone's like yeah let's do that because everybody knows that regardless of what the topic is he's gonna make it into a colossal joke and he's a good storyteller also he tends to mo- tell the most ribald stories right. or ribald or however you say it anyway his the most pg If you will, yes, yes. he's the most libertine of all of them, and he likes to tell stories that are edgy and transgressive. Right.
0: It's interesting. So there may be something to each narrator having their own personality. Yeah. It's an interesting question of composition, right? Because did he write the short stories first, or did he come up with this framing device? Yeah. I don't know. Hard to say. But having those little flourishes like that of, mm-hmm. we're going to have the one woman who only tells flat stories, and we're going to have this one character who tells very ribald stories. And I have not read all a 100 stories in the Decameron, and I don't believe in the curriculum. No, we st- just do day one. There's, and I've been there's choosing there's sort of stories. Selections. Yeah, I've
1: been choosing stories from day one since we're doing stuff with the Yeah, curriculum.
0: so I believe... When I went through the curriculum at Gutenberg, we didn't read all of day one. We did selections, but we had some of the same storytellers. Mm. And I believe one of them always tells redemption stories Yeah, where there's a young woman, she's extremely virtuous, she marries a man, or she's totally in love with a man, but he's kind of a monster. Mm -hmm. And then essentially through all of her suffering, the man is reformed, and she finally gets married, yeah, which is what she wanted the mm-hmm. whole time. And so, those kinds of details, like there may be connections there, mm-hmm. which is why you might be tempted to go, "Oh my gosh, there's so much to pay attention to here." Yeah, but I think it's helpful if you're just picking up the Decameron just to see what this is about, mm-hmm. to just read them like you'd read a collection of short stories with this extra mm-hmm. framing device. And then, if you are more interested, then there certainly are scholars out there who are willing to elucidate all of the interconnectivity of yeah
1: and if you want to go just a step further than just the stories without getting all academic you can just imagine it being told by some young italian woman right. sitting out under a tree to right. her young friends right? right she's trying to entertain them right and maybe she's got a a little bit of extra motivation so and so needs to learn this thing so i'm going right. to make sure i include that
0: yeah Comedy is one of those things that has been so helpful for me in thinking about storytelling in general. Mm-hmm. There, there is a strain of what we would call criticism. Thinking about stories and how stories work. There's a strain of it, and I think there's a version of this that is Christian, or purports to be Christian, mm-hmm. where everything has to be important. Uh, yeah. If it's not important, then why are we doing it? Mm-hmm. But it's important to realize that humans like jokes, right? Mm-hmm. That, that sometimes you tell a thing, you create a story, because the shape of it is pleasing or funny. Mm-hmm. Right? And it doesn't necessarily have to have any significance beyond that for it to be worthwhile, Mm -hmm. because a human being made that, right? And so the Decameron is certainly an opportunity to see a lot of instances Mm -hmm. of those sorts of stories.
1: Yeah, and with the stories in the Decameron, they, I mean, I can't say without exception, because I don't have that kind of a memory, but for the most part, they fall under the kind of humor or of comedy where... It has that grain of truth principle. Mm-hmm. It's only funny because there's something true going right. on. And it may be something relatively innocuous or it right. might be big and you know, with a lot of significance, right. the truth that it's right. getting at. But the thing that makes it funny is that little spin on it. Yeah. Or the way that somebody looks at that truth. Right.
0: I'm not sure you can have comedy. It may be the case that what the joke is about ends up being something different than what it seems to be.
1: Well, there's simply verbal comedy like puns. Right, right, right. But anything with content, yeah, you, there yeah, has Yeah, but to I think
0: on. puns often are drawing attention to the ambiguity of language. Right? Sure, yeah. And that's why what is funny might not be a conscious thing. Mm-hmm. And I think there's jokes that are about situations mm-hmm. that aren't about the situations. Right. We are both particular fans of the illustrations of Alfred Gorey, mm-hmm. right? And uh, Edward, I think. Edmund? Edward. Go-
1: Edward. Edward Gorey, yeah. Anyway,
0: he did The Ghastly ga- Crumb the gashly ti- <laughs> Yes, The Ghastly Crumb Tinies, which are hilarious, but the idea of children being murdered
1: is not hilarious. Is not
0: hilarious, but the idea of that story is funny. And it's like, why is that funny? And it's hard to pinpoint why that is funny. It's their stiff
1: little postures and expressionless little faces. Well, I mean, yes,
0: the compositions are very funny. But you know, there's a tradition of children in peril, Mm. or naughty children dying. What you are laughing at when you laugh at that is not I like children's suffering.
1: Right, no. And
0: it's hard to pinpoint what exactly it is. Mm-hmm. But there is something that that is latching onto that's true, I think. Yeah. That, I think anyway. it
1: falls into that, the absurd, the ways in which the absurd yeah. is funny. If you haven't looked at Edward Gorey's illustrations, you should just look at it because you will understand better what we're talking right, about. Right. If you really want to be delighted and horrified at the same time, look up Cautionary Tales for... For Children by Hilaire Bellach and illustrated by Edward Gorey. One of the stories in it is called Matilda, Who Told Lies and Burned to Death. Yes. So you, you get the feel. It's morality tales, but over the top and ridiculous. Right, 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 But then you get ones like, you know, John, who was mean to his sister and was chided seriously by his father. Yes.
0: And and then that's literally what happens yeah. in the poem. Yeah. In like it, four lines. Uh-huh.
1: And it's the same tone. As if these were equivalent. So there's like, there's humor within each story, right. and then there's a the humor of the contrast among the stories, which are all given equal weight.
0: All right. Well, bonus recommendation for <laughs> that's right, <laughs> for Hilary Bellick and Edward Gorey. Naomi, let's come back to the Decameron. Are there any final thoughts that you think are important for folks as we're wrapping up this discussion?
1: I think one of the great messages of the Decameron is that really serious topics can be addressed seriously, in fact, without being serious in tone. And many times this is the best way to address those topics. And for all that, a lot of the stories are a little funny, a little silly. Well, let's be honest, a lot funny, but a little silly, perhaps not about weighty matters per se, Most of them do involve something that people do take seriously. And Boccaccio shows that you can believe those things are serious without being solemn about them all the time. Right. And this is something you see in a lot of really great writers. G.K. Chesterton is known for being over the top in his exuberance and his just joy In the way he writes and the way he talks about things, even when they're very serious, perhaps even especially when they're very serious. And I think Boccaccio does that as well, where we have delightful and uproariously funny and clever and silly perspectives on things that are important for human life, whether they're important for humans in this world or the life to come or both. Some people seem to think that he's unconcerned with the life to come and that thing, and it's certainly not his focus. But no one writes that many critiques of hypocrites, basically, of people who purport one thing and do another without really caring about what they should be doing. And it's pretty obvious to me that... Boccaccio cares a great deal about living a good life, but he also doesn't take it upon himself to sermonize about it. Right. One thing to remember, and I know we mentioned this earlier, is that all of these stories, which are very comedic in tone, satirical, silly, whatnot, are all being told, well, Europe is dying. And all of the horrors of the plague and the pain and all of the social breakdown, both the characters are telling it, well, that is happening in their lives. And Boccaccio is telling it, well, that's happening in his life. And there's gaiety in the face of doom, something like that. There's a, what is it? Not spitting into the wind. That's like a bad side of it. But the the thing where you look at how bad things are, And you make a decision not to despair. And you go in the other direction. And he's doing that. It makes me think a little bit of a work that we're actually going to be reading for discussion at the education conference this year. C.S. Lewis's Learning in Wartime. Mm -hmm. And this is written in the context of World War II. And there's some discussion of what's the point of doing the humanities when we have this war hanging over us, when we've got these massive, serious issues. And Lewis's point is humanity always lives on the precipice of these massive, serious issues. We just don't always have our nose rubbed into it. And so it's always worthwhile, if it's ever worthwhile, to pursue these things. And I think there's a little bit of that going on here also. You have massive, well, death and then social breakdown and all this bad stuff happening and people are wondering if the world is coming to an end. Right. And in that situation, it's still worthwhile to talk about the human things and life in the right. world and how to live.
0: Well, and I don't want to condemn solemnity, but richness, mm. which is really what it is. The seriousness that is reducing life down mm-hmm. to, the current crisis mm-hmm. right? or the rules that we follow, right. if there isn't a current crisis, that can become inhumane. Yes. And so the role of comedians in this more modern sense, mm-hmm. not just of people who have all's well that end well stories, but who have stories that are jokes, mm-hmm. is to... I mean, one important thing that comedians do is to remind us that this isn't the only crisis, Mm -hmm. right? Yeah. That this isn't all that matters. Mm -hmm. That there's a whole world elsewhere. Yeah. And there are people elsewhere. And if you're going to solve the current crisis and the things that you see as bad in the world Mm -hmm. by dehumanizing people... That's not better.
1: <laughs> no, you're just creating a different and worse set of problems. Right. The corollary to that is the attitude that says, things are bad, therefore I refuse to be happy. Right. And if you're going to go that way, you'll never be happy because things right. will always be bad somewhere. Right. And all you have to do is look around a little right.
0: bit. A lot of things being bad depends on how you're seeing them. hmm Not totally. I mean, there are exceptions to this, but attitude does count for a lot.
1: It sure does, especially one's subjective experience. Right. If you, I'm sure most of you have heard this before, but the difference between a setback and an opportunity is just where you're standing when you look at it.
0: Right. Well, Naomi, the, I think this has been an interesting conversation about Boccaccio. Folks might be interested now in going and picking up a collection of short stories that they didn't know they needed. Hmm. If any of you have comments or questions, you can always email us at podcast at gutenberg.edu. I want to just mention that at the time that we're recording this, we're ending the school year. Graduation is upon us And we will have our Summer Institute and Educational Conference coming up. Is that the right order? Is the Educational Conference? That's right.
1: Summer Institute's in July and EdCon is in August. All right.
0: I'm not going to name what those are specifically because you may be hearing this in the future. But if you want more details about a way to get involved in Gutenberg College that is A little more commitment than listening to this podcast, but less commitment than getting a student to sign up here or being a student here, then you can go to Gutenberg's website at gutenberg.edu, and you can find details about what's happening this year with our Summer Institute and Educational Conference. Naomi, thank you for coming and talking to us about Mm Boccaccio. Thanks for having me. And we will be back in a little bit to talk more about the ideas and books which have shaped Western civilization through the curriculum of Gutenberg College.
1: Ciao.